This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. We're going to be reading out of 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Please be Moldova at peace as the prayers go. And so um, on behalf of Sasha and Sarah and Jeff and Robin and Dave and Pavel and Lydia and others that we pray for, partner with, and stand, stand with in faith, bring you greetings. So as, as Vic said last week, this, um, this, book, this book humbles us. It brings us to our knees because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We keep hearing about the suffering of Christ. We'll hear about it again today. And that brings us uh, tears of repentance over our own complaining when we suffer. It humbles us. But this book also causes us to rejoice. And I hope that today's message will be one of rejoicing for us. I believe the message today is that Christ's triumph is our hope. Let's look at this passage then under three main points. Christ's triumph, God's patience, and our hope. And I would pray... An old Anglican prayer, I love this. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us for the sake of your Son, our Savior. Let's look at the verse, uh, verse 18 again. It's worthy of rereading. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the gospel uh, in, in one sentence. This is a, a gospel in one verse. Now, Paul has been, or Peter's been encouraging us to suffer well, but then he says, for Christ also suffered. In other words, we suffer, Peter says, but Christ also suffered. And I would add that Christ suffered much more, much more, right? Because think about it, saints. When we suffer, the Lord lifts up his face upon us. He, he makes his, his countenance to shine upon us and gives us peace. But when Jesus suffered, he was all alone. He was all alone. Look at the truth of Christ's sacrifice, one phrase at a time. Christ suffered once for sins. Once. No more sacrifice is needed except that horrible and holy one that took place on the cross at Golgotha. Salvation is, is not found in Jesus plus. Salvation is found in Jesus only. Jesus only. You know, when the reformers understood this in the 1500s, they could no longer participate in the Roman Catholic Mass. They would not 
participate in the Roman Catholic Mass because it, is a, it represents a bloodless sacrifice of Christ, again, for sin. It's interesting, the Westminster Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism both say the same thing, that it is a, the Mass, the Roman Catholic Mass, is a form of idolatry. Christ cried from the cross, it is finished. We sang it today. Holy Spirit does that, brings to, to, to Caleb's songs that would, would imp, imp, amplify what's being preached. We sang it is finished. He said it is finished, and it was. It is. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the only way it can work, right? Unrighteous man can do nothing for righteous God that merits forgiveness. Absolutely nothing. Jesus paid it all. Right? That's the good news. We can't do anything. In fact, again, the Westminster Confession talks about, well, aren't the good things that we're doing, aren't those worthy of, of God's you know, merit? And, and, and the answer is no. Only, even the good works we do in Christ are still mixed with our sinfulness, and therefore God gives the merit by His grace. That he might bring us to God. Only God, only Christ can do that. For there's one God and there's one mediator between man and God. The man, God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Again, coming from Moldova, it's fresh on my mind that only, you know, 3% of that country goes to church on a Sunday morning. Only 1% of that, of that nation is evangelical believers. The other people who go to church go to an Orthodox church which preaches works. And in fact, how many Orthodox believers in Moldova have Bibles? Zero. If they have one, they're not supposed to because the priest will tell them you should not be reading the Word of God, or they won't call it the Word of God. You should not be reading the Bible because you can't understand it. Only I can understand it, and I will interpret it for you. And how do they interpret it? Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus. In fact, everywhere you go, in every village, at the beginning of every village, at every road, crossroad, there is an icon, a statue of Jesus dying on the cross. He's being sacrificed for sins repeatedly in the Orthodox religion by your good works, by you doing good things to bring about your own salvation. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that's Jesus being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now, this is a stumbling block, and this has caused people to question. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So, so his body died, but only his spirit was raised. In fact, that was one of the heresies that the first couple of centuries the church fathers had to deal with, right? It's a confusing verse. We have to dig a little to see what it means. It did not mean the bodily resurrection is a myth, And then Jesus came back as a spirit, right? Peter has mentioned the resurrection once in chapter 1. He mentions it again in verse 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what's he talking about? Remember, Peter was there when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. I love that verse in Luke chapter 24. Jesus says, see my hands and my... They thought he was a spirit. See my hands and my feet. That is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. No other Jesus dispelled that myth, that rumor, that heresy from the very beginning. I am not risen just in spirit, he says. I'm risen with a physical body. And so will we be. And our, his body was different. It was a glorified body. And so will ours be. That's why they couldn't recognize him. Because it was different, but it was still flesh and bone. 
as he said. How's that going to happen? Philippians. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him uh, to do so, to do all things. All things are subjected to him. You know, you can look in uh, the resurrection chapter on your own, but in 1 Corinthians 15, this, this issue is dealt with again. Paul deals with the issue of, was Jesus raised from the dead in body and spirit? And one of the verses says, our bodies are sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. That helps us understand what Peter is saying here. Yes, Peter died once and for all. He triumphed over death he satisfied God's wrath. He paid for our sins completely and fully. And there's nothing else need to be done except our surrender to him. And we only can do that by grace through faith that he gives us. And then we live our lives uh, with him as, tri- as he who has triumphed over all. At the end of this passage, all, over all angels, all powers, all authorities are subject to him. So that reads, leads us to the next verse. If verse 18 is a Rubik's Cube, verses 19 and 20 are a 5,000 jigsaw puzzle of a polar bear in a snowstorm. Celia, could you do that one? You like, you like jigsaws, right? 5,000 piece. This is a difficult passage. Let's read this again. Verse 19. In which he went, talking about Jesus, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. We're in good company this morning if we admit that we have no idea what this means. John Piper being, introduced, or being interviewed by Nancy Guthrie said, I have no idea what this means. He has an idea, but he doesn't understand it. Martin Luther said this, He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Now, there are three interpretations as to what Peter's talking about here, and only two, I think, that are predominant. The the third is is more problematic, so we're not going to talk about that one, but I wanted to go over the two. One is preferred by men like Sam Storms, and the other is preferred by men like Wayne Grudem and John Piper, not to leave out the women. I'm not sure where our friend Jen Wilkin would fall fall on this one, but women scholars as well are divided on this, this issue. But none of those men would say, and none of those women would say that they know with certainty that this is what it means. And I refer back to our good friend Alistair Begg who said the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. That's where we live. We live in the main things and the plain things. We can discuss the other things that aren't plain and aren't main. That's okay. Certainly, the interpretation of this verse is not a main thing and it's certainly not a plain thing. Okay, so... Let's get to it. The first interpretation is the spirits in prison were people who lived in the day of Noah's, days of Noah. People who were alive in the days of Noah. They weren't in prison then, but they're in prison now. They're in Hades or Sheol, whichever term you prefer. They're dead now, but they weren't then. Okay. So the idea is that when they were alive, the Spirit of Christ proclaimed the truth to them through Noah. And we know God was patient, right? How long did it take to build the ark, young people? How long? Under 12? Tell me how many years. I heard 100. Somebody said 100. It took 100 years for Noah and his sons to build the ark. 
And Wayne Grudem wrote in his book, Systematic Theology, Christ in spirit was preaching through Noah to the hostile unbelievers around him. He said, where does he get that from? Well, in in his second letter, Peter, 2 Peter 2.5, called Noah a herald of righteousness. We don't see any of that in Genesis, but Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, oh, no, no. He was proclaiming the righteousness of God to unbelievers all around him. He was a preacher of righteousness. How do we know he did that work through the Spirit of Christ? Well, we don't know for sure, but in the first chapter, Peter says, remember the Spirit of Christ in chapter 1 of this book was speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament. Remember when we talked about that? And they were searching and trying to figure out, you know, when when this thing was going to happen, this birth of, of the Messiah. Perhaps Peter believed that the Spirit of Christ was working in Noah as well as a very early prophet. I think we could stipulate that and say, okay, that that makes sense. So Noah was offering grace by the Spirit of Christ to the unbelievers around him who were scoffing and mocking him for building this huge thing that he said would float on water when the flood came. They're going, what are you talking about? Where's that water coming from? Noah never rained before. Water came up from the earth. The second interpretation is that the spirits in prison were evil angels who had been imprisoned. Now, this would mean that Jesus, sometime between the cross and the resurrection, sometime on Friday, you know, after midnight or or whenever, he died at 3 in the afternoon, could have gone right then. 3.15 p.m., he's right there. He's preaching uh, to angels uh, and proclaiming his triumph over them. Fallen angels. Now, this, those who believe this appeal to 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, dot, dot, dot. So, this is a possibility. I tend to agree with Gruden when he says that this one requires too many assumptions by the readers, too many leaps to make. And remember, Peter seems to be talking about this in the context of Noah and the days of Noah and Noah building the ark. That's the whole imagery that's being presented here. And there's no mention in the Genesis uh, uh, story, in the story of the flood, of angels falling and evil angels. Go back to Genesis. Earlier in Genesis, Genesis you see some of, some of that perhaps, but um, even that is, is disputed. There, but this is talking about the building of the ark. So again, saints, don't make a doctrine out of either one of these. Don't build a church based on this. You know, we're going to be the church of the preaching to the angels in hell. Uh, you know, that's a great, sounds like a great church to go to, doesn't it? Uh, don't do that. But what can we take away from this with certainty? What, do we, what can we put, place our, our hopes in from this text? I think that, that Peter is primarily making the point that Christ has triumphed over death and sin and the, and the cross and, 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 and evil for our sake. And the use of the story of, of how God saved eight people from utter destruction. The rest of the world was destroyed, but God kept eight people who were surrounded by ungodliness and wickedness, but he kept these people from being destroyed to encourage the faithful he's writing to no matter how few in number they may be, no matter how persecuted they may be, no matter how they're surrounded by how many people who hate them and hate the cross, that they also will be rescued. 
And that brings us then to the third point, our hope. Again, let's read these verses, verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. And it's the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Which corresponds to what? What's he talking about here? The baptism that we have corresponds to Noah's Ark. Right? He's looking back at the Ark. When we studied Genesis, remember we talked about archetypes? Remember archetypes in the Old Testament? Not if you remember that. Okay, good. Uh, some of you are just nodding off. Is not, look, an archetype, is a, an archetype is a model. It's a symbol. It's a pattern in the Old Testament that points to its fulfillment in the new. This is a picture, but we're going to see the real picture. This is, this is a photograph, but hey, we're going to meet the real person over here, the real thing, the real article, the genuine article. So the ark was provided for sinners when there was no other hope for salvation. There was no other hope for salvation except the ark of God. At least that was the the, the, the decision of God before the foundations of the earth to do it this way. The ark was planned by God. The ark was a place of safety. It was the only place of safety. Reminded me of a, a man asked D.L. Moody one time, or he was talking to D.L. Moody, he said, I just, don't, I just don't feel saved. I'm worried because I don't feel saved. And D.L. Moody said, did, did Noah feel safe? Or was Noah safe in the ark? He said, yes, of course he was safe in the ark. He said, well, was it because he felt safe or was it because of the ark? Yeah, I guess it was because of the ark. Peter makes the point that the ark points also to baptism. We have to be careful here. Look at the text again. For baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, if you take that verse out of context and you start going around saying baptism now saves you, you get the Mormon church. The Mormon church is constantly baptizing for the dead because they believe that people who died long ago who weren't Mormons, who never converted to Mormonism, now need to be baptized for so they can be in heaven. They can be a good Mormon in heaven. Baptism cannot save you. Certainly can't save you if you're Mormon, but it can't save you if you are Christian as well. Baptism did not and cannot and will not ever save you, right? If we look at that verse in context, we see these things. Baptism, Peter says, did not remove dirt any more than the ark brought Noah's family to safety. You say, wait a minute. I thought the ark did bring Noah's family to safety. Well, I would suggest it was a safe place from the storm, but it was God who brought eight people to safety. Right? He used the ark. That was the means by which God saved, but God saved God brought them through that to dry ground. Baptism is a recognition by a redeemed sinner that ours appeal to God the Father through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're baptized not because we want to be cleansed by that. We baptize because we have been cleansed by the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And baptism reminds us that it's only in Jesus that we're safe. If you're in Jesus, you're safe. Somebody asked me, did you feel unsafe in Moldova? And Moldova is really not a dangerous place. 
Uh, the only places I felt unsafe was on the bus, especially when I was falling all over the place trying to hold on to the strap. But we are safe in the arms of Jesus. One of the things I talked about to the men at the men's conference there was how important it is for a father to be a protector of his family. You guys have heard this teaching from me. It's part of our calling as men to protect our families. But ultimately, who protects our families? I heard a child say it first. A little child shall lead them. Larry Warren shared the story. After I had shared the four Ps and, and I had sat down, I asked Larry to come up and share something that occurred to him as I was teaching. And each time he did this, he just, I mean, he just, he, he did a great job. God really used him in a powerful way. He shared the story, and some of you have heard this, when he and his family lived in South Africa. And they were there for about six years in Cape Town. And they were living there at a time after apartheid and after Nelson Mandela had been released from prison. I don't think he'd been made president yet, but he'd been released from prison. There was a lot of unrest in the country. People did not want apartheid to be gone. People did not want Nelson Mandela to be released. And so churches that were promoting uh, you know, equality among blacks and whites and, and coloreds, as they called them, they were targets. So Larry and his wife, Mary, and their two boys were on their way to church one morning, and Mary's pregnant. She's expecting their third son, and she doesn't feel well. Halfway to the church, she tells Larry, she said, I don't feel well. Can you take me back home? He said, yeah, sure. And so he turns the car around. Of course, the two boys chimed in and said, we want to stay home with mommy, just like all of our children, right? Stay home with mommy. So he gets to the house, and he drops Mary and the boys off, and he gets back to church, but he's late. Church is, is just about to start. And so he looks in, and the place they normally sit down near the front is taken. So he just grabs a seat in the back. Right after the service started, gunmen, gunmen came in from the front, armed with AK-47s, and opened up on the church. Right after that, men came in from the back, close to where Larry was, and rolled hand grenades down towards the middle of the congregation. It was, a, it was a sanctuary a little bit bigger than this one, probably twice this size, actually. And Larry says, you know, if, if I had not come late, if we had been there on time, he said, we would have died. Many people died because one of the grenades went off right under the pew where we normally sit. And he said to the men, I could not have protected, there he is preaching, I could not have protected my family from that. Only God could do that. When our third son was born, we named him Joshua. I believe Peter shared this text in his letter to the dispersed people of God, all over the world who were being persecuted, to say, take heart, God can and will save his people. Noah and his family were surrounded by wickedness. Their voices were muted by the raucous voices of those who hated God and hated everyone who loved God. And yet they were faithful and they were saved. The church that Peter's writing to in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago were surrounded by people who hated Christ, who believed in the pantheon of gods and believed that Christ was an imposter and they persecuted. And these people have not yet been persecuted to the degree that they will be persecuted as we know happened under Nero. And yet they were faithful and God delivered them even through that persecution. And saints, we live in a world 
The world around us, other countries know this much more than we do now. We live in a world that hates Christ and hates us and hates everything that has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, we must, as a church, remain faithful. I love the imagery that Vic used this morning of of a small group of people gathered together against the storm outside to lift up the praises of God and worship Him. It's good. It is good to come to the house of the Lord because here we were reminded that He has won. He's already won. And we have won as well. And though we might suffer and though we might die in this battle for Christ and in Christ, oh, we, we will not lose. We have already been seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. And that's why Peter says in chapter 4, we'll get to this, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Christ has triumphed and he is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that you have triumphed over darkness, that the light has come And the darkness could not overcome it. And the light has come and now is is in us. We are the light of Christ in a dark world. And Lord, help us to shine. Help us to believe. Help us to put our faith in you. Help us to know that we're safe in you, whether we feel safe or not. Whether we feel saved or not. If we've trusted Christ as our Savior, we're living in such a way that we want to know you more and more. Lord, that's evidence that, that you've saved us. Lord, I, I pray for uh, this, this congregation that even though we live in a fairly safe area, Lord, we are surrounded by people who don't know you and are, and are unsafe because of that, unsafe to themselves, unsafe to society. Lord, give us a, a heart for them, to pray for them, to reach out to them, to engage them in conversation, to bring the gospel to them. We're thankful for people like uh, Sasha and Sarah and, and, and Dave and others who are, are battling uh, in, a, in a difficult place in Moldova. We're praying for the peace of Moldova. We're praying for the peace in Ukraine, for the church in Ukraine, that they will remain steadfast. We're thankful for Connor and Alyssa who will share today about their vision to go to unreached people groups and put themselves perhaps in harm's way for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, we're thankful that you are our safe place. And we give you all glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, greet one another in the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.